Well, in case we haven't met before, my name is Ben Cuthbert. I'm one of the associate pastors here at South, and uh, encourage you to continue to pray for our senior pastor, Don Denius, who's away traveling uh, with Cornerstone University and their work in Asia. He's been to China and India and Thailand. He's back in China today, and he'll return to us later this week. So keep praying for his safe travels and the effectiveness of his ministry on the other side of the world. But while he's away, we're going to continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. So you're welcome to turn to Mark chapter 3. As we will attempt to understand in a fresh sort of way what it really means to follow Jesus. To understand who Jesus simply is. As you're turning to Mark chapter 3, I've got a question for you. I wonder if you've ever been misunderstood. You know, that time that you said something to a friend and she totally took you the wrong way. Or that time that you attempted to work really hard in the workplace and then your employer saw it as somehow undermining his authority. It's frustrating to be misunderstood, isn't it? Or what about the flip side? Have you ever misunderstood someone else? Misjudged someone else? You thought for sure that new neighbor was going to be a real pain in the neck. And five or ten years later, you count him a really close friend. Or back in your school days, or for those of you who are here today and still in school, you were certain that teacher, she was, she was out to ruin your life. When in fact, she just wanted to push you to be a better student and a better citizen. My point is this, on the human level, we understand that misunderstanding someone's identity or intentions can be really frustrating. And I think what we'll see today in the Gospel of Mark is that to misunderstand Jesus, to misunderstand Jesus' intentions or his very identity is not just temporarily frustrating, but it is eternally devastating. So we need to understand who Jesus really is from God's Word as it's portrayed to us here in the Gospel of Mark. Now if you remember from last week and all the preceding weeks really in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is misunderstood early on in his earthly ministry. He's especially misunderstood by the religious leaders of the day. Remember the Pharisees last week and Mark chapter 3, the beginning there, they misunderstood him in a most egregious fashion. They were so offended by his kind acts of mercy in restoring life to a man with a disfigured hands that they not only spoke out against him, they went to great lengths to go into radical alliance with some of their arch enemies the Herodians, to, as verse 6 puts it, begin a plot on how they might kill or destroy Jesus. The Pharisees clearly misunderstood Jesus in a most profound and fundamental way. And really, this type of hostility that we see in Mark 3 is just the beginning of the work that they'll do to undo the ministry of Jesus 
and to even push for his death. So I wonder, as we pick up in Mark 3, verse 7, if the people with whom Jesus interacts in the days after that encounter on the Sabbath day, whether these people will truly understand Jesus, or will they misunderstand him as well? Well, let's see together. Let's listen to God's written down words from Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority and to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name of Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided... He cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and the blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mothers and or sorry, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, "Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you." "Who are my mother and my brothers?" he asked. Then he looked around at those seated in the circle around him and said, "Here are my mother and my brothers." Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. So we see back in verse 7 
that in the wake of his Sabbath healing of the man with a disfigured hand, Jesus' fame has spread throughout the region. Keep in mind, in the ancient world, there's no 24-7 news service. You don't have Instagram. You don't have Twitter. The news about Jesus has spread word of mouth through the grapevine, so to speak. This is quite remarkable. That in a matter of days, people have heard that there is a miracle worker in Galilee. Up north there, by the sea, the lake called the Sea of Galilee. And word has spread so far and so wide that there are people from the north who have come, from Tyre and Sidon. There are people from the south, Idumea, which is just another name for that area in the Old Testament we typically refer to as Edom. The people are coming from the east, way across the Jordan River. And the people are coming from the west, down in Jerusalem and Judea, out to the west toward the Mediterranean Sea. People everywhere from all sorts of backgrounds are coming to see the miracle worker in Galilee. And this is amazing in one sense, but I want you to see that it's tragic in another sense. Because while the crowd might look less hostile to Jesus than the Pharisees were, in chapter 3, verse 6, where they're plotting to kill him. The narrative that Mark records here tells us that the crowd, each of these individuals, well, they're in it for themselves. They're literally a plethora of pushing, plagued, and possessed people. They want their own medical needs met. And you can understand why they want their own medical deeds met. In the ancient world, you don't have a primary care physician. There's no sophisticated health care system that might eventually get you that referral to Mayo or to the Cleveland Clinic. They want to be healed. And they are diseased and plagued in some of the most serious sorts of ways. But they're willing to get to this miracle worker by pushing him and risking his own death. Did you notice that Jesus has to call his regular disciples to get a boat in case he needs some sort of getaway machine from these pushing crowds? What I want us to see is that the crowd sees Jesus as nothing more than a miracle worker. And he's so much more than that. I think Mark wants us to see that Jesus is more than a miracle worker. In this passage, with crowds of people from everywhere coming, he wants us to see that Jesus is the compassionate Lord of all nations. Jesus is the compassionate Lord of all nations. He was kind enough, as it says in verse 10, to heal many, even though they're pressing in on him like fans at a basketball stadium have rushed the court and trampled over cameramen. He's kind 
and gracious and compassion to heal people from everywhere, from all nations. And I'm thankful that here at South Church we have a commitment to global missions. That we understand that people everywhere from all ethnicities need to hear the good news of Jesus. And it's been an especially exciting 2016 from a global missions perspective here at South. We've already commissioned two brand new missionaries out to the field. Last week, we sent back to the field some of our most veteran missionaries, the Reeds, to Indonesia. Keep them in your prayers. They're adjusting back to life even today. And Lord willing, in a week or two, we're going to commission another brand new missionary to the field. So we get global missions here at South. But my challenge for us today, right here in Lansing, is are we good about reaching the increasing number of internationals right here in our midst? You go to the grocery store today, and the people that you bump into look different than they looked even 5 or 10 or 15 years ago. Are we welcoming the nations as compassionately as Jesus, the Lord of all nations? When people of different ethnicities or even just different socioeconomic backgrounds visit our church, are we so consumed with our own needs, Jesus, our own little miracle worker, that we forget to minister to those with compassion that are different from us? Because we need to keep in mind that Jesus is the compassionate Lord of the nations, and he desires people from everywhere, from every tribe and tongue and language group, to come to him in repentance and faith. So Jesus is more than a miracle worker. He is the compassionate Lord of the nations. But I think also in this initial episode, Jesus is to be seen as the powerful Son of God. Isn't it ironic that the evil spirits, not the crowd, the evil spirits get Jesus' identity right? They're the ones cowering at Jesus' feet who are crying out in verse 11, You are the Son of God. But Jesus will not have their proclamation at this time. Because keep in mind, while the evil spirits get Jesus' identity right, he is the Son of God, they don't possess that authentic, saving, trusting faith in Jesus as the powerful Son of God. Remember, James says later in the New Testament that even the demons believe, and they shudder. Perhaps he has this episode in mind. The cowering evil spirits crying out, you are the Son of God. But Jesus doesn't want to just be acknowledged correctly, to have the right title. Authentic saving faith means submitting to the powerful Son of God. And these evil spirits are still rebels. Furthermore, Jesus won't have their public proclamation of his identity at this point in time, because if the crowds hear the Son of God is on the scene, they might associate Jesus' sonship entirely with miraculous healings. In other words, the Son of God is only about my health and my wealth. 
But later in the Gospel of Mark, we'll learn that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what Jesus wants the crowds to understand way, way back then, and what he wants us to understand today is that the powerful Son of God, his power is not most present when he's doing miraculous healings. His power is most evident when he suffers and dies and defeats sin and death at the cross and rises miraculously from the grave. That's the most miraculous work of Jesus, that he would save sinners like us. So from this first lakeside episode, we see that Jesus is more than a miracle worker. He's the compassionate Lord of the nations. He's the powerful Son of God. And then in verse 13, Jesus moves from the lakeside to the mountainside. In the Bible, generally speaking, when you find someone going up a mountain or up a hill, as really the case here, there's almost always something really significant happening. And this situation is no different. As he goes up the mountainside, goes up the hillside, he has a group of his regular followers, the disciples, with him. And out of the midst of these disciples, he calls out ten, 12 men in particular to be with him. Now, my, this might seem rather ordinary, but I don't want us to misunderstand what this episode with the 12 tells us about Jesus' identity. I mean, we might look at this as a group of disciples and then a special 12 who have been singled out to follow Jesus as their mentor. We all know what a mentor is, I think. You know, a trusted guide, a, a faithful counselor. And that's good. Some of you might have mentors in your life. I would actually commend that. But we know that on the human level, however good advice a mentor gives, that advice can be dismissed. You're not bound to follow every single piece of counsel that a mentor gives because no human is infallible. They're going to goof up and lead you astray from time to time, aren't they? But here we see that Jesus is more than a mentor to these 12. He's more than a mentor to us. Take a close look at the invitation of Jesus and the response of the 12. I'm looking at verses 13 through 19. Notice that he calls and they come. There's an immediate response. It should remind you of back in chapter 1 when when Jesus first called Simon and Andrew and James and John to follow him, his disciples, they left their nets and they followed him. They were compelled by Jesus' authority. And not only do they respond immediately, these 12 are appointed or designated with a very unique title. They're called apostles. You might not be aware that the word apostle simply means a sent one, an authorized sent one. And so if you look at verses 14 and 15, you'll see the emphasis on Jesus sending these sent ones. He appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might 
be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So this appointment of the twelve is very unique. Jesus has designated them as this new twelve corresponding to the twelve tribes of the Old Testament people of God, Israel. These new twelve will be now the authoritative representatives of Jesus as he puts together his new covenant people, the church. And so he selects these twelve and he gives them the privilege of being with him and doing things like him. They are going to proclaim the gospel like him. And they're going to drive out demons like him. They are his authoritative representatives. And so we need to understand that only Jesus, who is more than a mentor, can appoint them in this unique way. In other words, Jesus is the authoritative king. That's what we're to take away from this episode with the twelve. They respond without hesitation to his authority. And they begin their journey of being his authorized representatives. Think about it. These 12, these men whose names are written down here in God's word, these are the men who will walk with him, not just on the miraculous days by the lakeside, but all the way to the cross. These are the men who would witness his resurrection. These are the men who would be commissioned to take the gospel to all nations once Jesus had ascended and they'd been gifted with the Holy Spirit. These are the men whose lives we, receive, we see recorded in the book of the New Testament we call Acts, which is really just short for Acts of the Apostles, right? These are the authorized representatives of Jesus, the authoritative king. And it's these men minus Judas, who, as the text says, eventually betrayed Jesus, and plus Paul, that unique apostle who was chosen and sent out at a later time after Jesus' resurrection. It's these men who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, either authored or spoke to the authenticity of the books that we call the New Testament. Jesus, the authoritative king, speaks and these men obey they're his authorized representatives so what does this have to do with us I mean there is the sense the very real sense that the office and the activity of the 12 apostles is unique it's never going to be repeated again but what doesn't change is Jesus authority over all of his disciples Jesus is still authoritative which means that his word is to be obeyed immediately because it's good and right and loving instruction for our lives. So we should trust him. We also need to keep in mind that while we might not be exercising demons like the 12 were, we have been called to be gospel proclaimers and to be spiritual warfare specialists. At the moment of believing in Christ, we've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and so we have a responsibility to act on behalf of our authoritative king in this world. Paul speaks about our 
responsibility to be engaged in spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, 12. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Let's open our eyes, friends, to the fact that there is real demonic wickedness in this world today. And that Satan is using his demonic forces to really destroy society. So we, as followers of the authoritative King Jesus, we must fight battles against substance abuse and against homelessness and poverty and sex trafficking and mass shootings and abortion. And how will we fight these things? We'll fight these things through prayer, with the gospel, and with any practical means at our disposal. We, Christians, need to be representatives of the authoritative king and coming alongside great organizations like Pregnancy Services and Shared Pregnancy and the City Rescue Mission and Christian Services, doing that sort of work on the front lines right here in Lansing. That is real spiritual battle. So, will we recognize that Jesus is the authoritative king? Will we immediately obey all his words? And will we be his representatives as we proclaim the gospel, as we do spiritual battle wherever the Lord will take us? But a sermon text didn't end on the mountainside with Jesus and the Twelve. It moves to another crowded place, this time a home, starting in verse 20. And there we find more misunderstanding of Jesus. In fact, we find the most devastating misunderstanding of it all. Jesus' own flesh and blood are ready to seize him because they think he's deranged. They say he's out of his mind. And Jesus' opponents, the teachers of the law, they're continuing their efforts to destroy him by claiming that he's demonic. So here in the house, you've got claims that Jesus is deranged and demonic. Think how hurtful. Think how frustrating it would have been for Jesus to learn that those most biologically close to him, Mother Mary, who bore him and laid him in a manger, and his brothers, with whom he grew up in Nazareth, have misunderstood him to the point that they call him a madman. He's out of his mind. And consider again how deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, to use a phrase from back in chapter 3, verse 5, deeply distressed and st at their stubborn hearts, Jesus must have been with the teachers of the law. Because they, out of all people, should not have misunderstood him and his identity. They should have recognized that the words and deeds that he was speaking and doing right before their very eyes were not demonic. They were the specific fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And they're calling him a madman. But Jesus is certainly more than a madman. 
And Jesus patiently but firmly sees right through the misunderstanding of both the biological family and the teachers of the law. He tells a little parable that suggests how ridiculous it is that they would suggest that he was working on behalf of Satan. Would it make any sense for Satan to create a civil war in his own nation, in his own following? Obviously, Jesus would not cast out Satan's demons if he was working for Satan. And he just leaves it at that. He doesn't entertain the ridiculous thoughts any longer. But what I want us to see, and this is why I think that the misunderstanding here in the home is most devastating, is that the misunderstanding of the family and the misunderstanding of the religious leaders is actually the same. Both of them do not believe in Jesus. They don't believe in his real identity. Those closest to him and those who are opposing him do not recognize that Jesus is the compassionate Lord of the nations. They don't believe that Jesus is the powerful Son of God. They haven't come to believe that Jesus is the only authoritative king. And that's why Jesus gives these strong words of warning of saying that while he is gracious to forgive all sins, there's one sin that can't be forgiven, and that's the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which is really the sin of unbelief. One Bible scholar helpfully describes the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit in this way. He says, this is the sin of the willfully blind who persistently refuse the illumination of the Spirit. For such... There can be no forgiveness, for they have refused the only way of forgiveness that God has provided. In other words, God has sent his spirit to shine light on his son. And anyone who refuses to see Jesus for who he is and turn from sin and trust in Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, is eternally condemned. That's why misunderstanding Jesus in this way is so devastating. But there's a silver lining to this passage, and it comes in the last two verses, verses 34 and 35 of chapter 3. Because Jesus holds out hope. He says, for those who understand my identity, for those who understand my intentions, there is great news I'm more than a madman, Jesus says. I am the gracious Savior who adopts true believers into my family. And he speaks those gracious words to those gathered with believing hearts around him in verses 34 and 35. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Are you ready to do God's will? Doing God's will begins, as I just stated, by turning from sin and trusting in Jesus, God's only Son, the gracious Savior. But doing God's will continues by a sustained trust in Jesus that is exhibited in obedience to God and His will, His commands, His words for our life. 
One scholar puts it this way. It's a constant New Testament stress that mere knowledge of doctrine, even with intellectual assent and appraisal of its truth, is inadequate without acting on it. In other words, we must not only claim to believe in Jesus, which I suspect many, if not most, of you do in this room today. We might just not just claim to believe in Jesus. We must show that we believe in Jesus by doing God's will, imitating Jesus, who did God's will perfectly. So what might that look like in our lives today? Doing God's will as a believer in Jesus might be as simple as teaching your children about Jesus. I hope if you have kids here today, between the ages of the busy bees, which is about four-ish, up through fifth grade, that you'll join us for this family fun event afterward, because we want to help you as a church raise your kids to know and love Jesus. Doing God's will might mean honoring your father, which could look like caring for your aging parents, or it might look like respecting your father and mother if you're still living under their roof. Doing God's will might be not cheating on your taxes this time of year. Doing God's will might be voting with deep biblical convictions when you have the opportunity this election year, instead of just going along party lines or along with the popular polls. Or doing God's will might be more radical. Might look like praying for and loving your enemies instead of slandering them on Facebook. Even if that includes lowly Wolverine fans like me. Be a gracious winner. More seriously, doing God's will might look like telling your neighbor about Jesus instead of continuing to make excuses about how you'll do it next week or next month or next year. Doing God's will might be giving more generously this year of your, your time and your talents to the work of God's church instead of spending your raise or your free time entirely on your own pleasures. Doing God's will might look like seeking help from a Christian friend or a pastor or a professional with that addiction that you've been battling for a long, long time, whether that be an addiction to a substance or addiction to pornography or something else, instead of trying to hide in shame and fight that battle alone. Let's believe in Jesus, the gracious Savior, and let's show it by doing God's will. Let's not misunderstand Jesus. He's more than a miracle worker. He's the compassionate Lord of the nations, and he's the powerful Son of God. He's more than a mentor. He is the authoritative king. And thank God he is more than a madman. He is the only gracious Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, wherever we might have gotten it wrong, however we might have misunderstood Jesus, clarify his identity in our minds and our hearts today that we might believe in him and follow him in doing your will. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Please stand and sing with us. All hail the power of Jesus' name.
Disciples of Jesus at South Church, would you go with this good word? Let us never misunderstand Jesus. Let us believe in him and follow him in doing God's will. And God's believing and obedient children said, amen. Amen.